The greatest story ever told is a true story. It is a story of adventures, battles, kings and queens, heroes and villains, good and evil, history and prophecy. It is your story. Come join the adventure of the Bible story. Chapter 117 God Sends Elijah the Prophet King Basha of the northern kingdom of Israel had taken over the town of Ramah in northern Judah, but then had to abandon his fortifications there in order to deal with a threat from Syria. Asa had taken the opportunity to drive the Israelites' presence back out of the small town. Although his plans lay in rubble beside the Jerusalem highway, Basha had not given up his dream of conquering Judah and uniting the twelve tribes under his rule. Then, he thought, his forces would be strong enough to repel the Syrians and any other threats to Israel. His ambitions waned slightly when a prophet by the name of Jehu came to him. God has given me a message for you, said Jehu. He says it was only possible for you to take over the throne of the ten tribes because he willed it. It was God who cut off the lineage of Jeroboam and made you king. If you had obeyed him, you would have had a long and prosperous reign. Instead, you have disobeyed his laws and turned the people away from him, just as Jeroboam did. Because you followed in his footsteps, your punishment shall be the same as his. You and your family will die just like Jeroboam's. Basha was troubled by the prophet's visit, but did not change his ways. His life ended soon thereafter, ending his 23 years on the throne of Israel. His son, Ella, became the next ruler, following in his father's footsteps of rebelling against God. Ella lived a life of self-indulgence. His ineffectual rule ended within two years when one of his cavalry captains, Zimri, assassinated him while he lay drunk. As prophesied, Zimri killed every member of Basha's line. When Zimri took over, the army was not in the capital at the time. Instead, it was besieging the Philistine town of Gibbethon. When the soldiers heard of Zimri's coup, they chose their army commander, Omri, to be their king. Omri, although probably surprised, took the opportunity and marched on Terza, where Zimri was. When Zimri heard the army was coming to end his coup, he realized the futility of his position. He ordered the defense of the city, but troops who had supported him only hours before did not want to die in vain. As Omri's forces marched through Terza looking for Zimri, he sat trembling with rage and fear in a hiding place deep 
inside the palace. In a fit of spite, he decided to set fire to the palace he had worked so hard to get. He perished in the blaze. Zimri had reigned as king only seven days before he died in the flames. His death and Omri's occupation of the capital did not end the disunity that had been tearing Israel apart. The military had chosen Omri for the throne, but Israel's civilians favored a man named Tibnai. Half of the people followed each man causing civil unrest. Finally, after four years, Omri's followers prevailed and Tibnai died, leaving Omri in uncontested control of Israel. Omni did not like the replacement palace that had to be built thanks to Zimri's final act of arson. One day, while he was out riding, he spied a large hill with a flat top. Suddenly, he had an idea. That would be an ideal location for a palace, and the country around it would make a spectacular capital. I am going to buy that hill, Omri told an aide when he returned from his ride. Find out who owns it and make him an offer. I want that hill for my palace. Omri purchased the hill for two talents of silver. Construction on his palace began soon after. The location eventually became known as the city of Samaria, capital of the ten tribes of Israel. Omri had the opportunity to turn his nation back to God. But just as the other kings who had ruled over Israel did, he followed in Jeroboam's heresy. He was an idol worshipper and encouraged the practice of idolatry in the kingdom. The hill he selected for his palace had become a rudimentary city filled with shrines to heathen gods, a tremendous altar for the Canaanite god Baal, and a school for the training of idol-worshipping priests. Samaria was the capital of paganism in Israel. Omni's rule lasted only 12 years, and he was buried in Samaria. The next king of the ten northern tribes was one of his most notorious, Ahab, Omri's son. He took power just a few years before King Asa of Judah died. Ahab was worse than any previous king who had ruled over Israel. Perhaps he might not have been as bad had he not married Jezebel, a Canaanite princess of the nearby Phoenician city-state of Zidon. Ahab was dominated by this evil woman. Jezebel was the daughter of Ethbal, king of the Zidonians and a well-known scoundrel. Having grown up surrounded by the court intrigues of the Zidonians, she used her wiles to scheme and plot in the court of Israel. She and her husband 
would become a source of great misery to Israel. Jezebel was a proud idol worshiper and she took a love of idolatry and hatred of the servants of God to a fanatical level. She sent soldiers to kill the true prophets and Ahab made no protest. His steward Obadiah did not support this. He was a servant of the true God. Somehow Obadiah was able to live in the wicked household and still cling to his faith. While working under the nose of Jezebel, Obadiah managed to save 100 prophets by sending them to nearby caves and providing them with food and water. The ten tribes suffered more than ever before under the reign of this evil couple. God was very angry about the state of affairs in Israel and disaster was sure to strike unless things were sorted out. In an effort to avoid having to send even more grievous punishment, God raised up one of the most powerful prophets in the Bible in order to deliver a strong warning. One day, Elijah showed up at the palace unannounced. I have come a long way from Gilead, east of the Jordan, to bring a message to Ahab the king. He declared to the bemused palace guards. A messenger sent word to Ahab, who granted Elijah an audience, curious as to what he might say. I am a prophet of the true God of Israel, whom you reject. Today I bring a warning from God. Because Israel is so full of sin, the land will have neither rain nor dew until I return and give the word. Ahab considered the man before him for a moment, then began to chuckle. <laughs> Thank you for the warning, but I think we'll be fine, he said. Show this man out, he commanded his servants. Should we really do this, sir? One of his aides asked quietly in his ear. He's harmless and obviously crazy, said Ahab. I have no wish to punish him for his insolence. Elijah left the palace slightly disheartened by the king's rejection of his warning. God spoke to him as soon as he left, telling him to go eastward and hide by the Sherith Brook, a tributary of the Jordan. As Elijah reached the brook, he searched until he found a cave that would provide him shelter. He made himself a bed of grass and prepared for what lie ahead. God did not tell him how long he was to stay in this hiding place, so he would have to wait for further instructions. Meanwhile, he had water for drinking, bathing, and washing. He had dry shelter. He even had a pleasant view from the cave and he could see anyone coming up the ravine from the river.
That evening, as the sun began to set, Elijah became aware of his hunger. He had walked 20 miles that day, then readied a campsite. He was hungry and also quite tired. Suddenly, he heard the whisper of wings. As he turned to look, a small flock of ravens settled on rocks nearby. After only a moment, they flew off, but they had left behind food. Elijah saw morsels of bread and cooked meat on the rock. His faith in God was great, but being fed by birds spectacularly verified God's miraculous power. Elijah gave thanks and ate. As the day stretched on, the ravens came like clockwork in the morning and evening. Elijah spent his time praying and studying, readying himself for what he was sure would be hard times ahead. Months passed as he waited for God's instructions. By this time, the drought that had started when Elijah spoke to Ahab was becoming quite severe. The land began to bake under the sun. Crops failed and wells dried up, while brooks went from rushing waterways to trickles, then to bare, dusty rock. Although Ahab's respect for God was almost non-existent, he well remembered Elijah's warning that the drought would persist until he came back. Ahab sent out desperate search parties for the prophet, but none could find him. After a year or so, the stream by Elijah's cave dried up. But God already had a new hiding place picked out for him. Go to Zarephath, near the coast of Sidon. There is a widow there. I have chosen to help you. She will give you food and a place to stay. The next morning, Elijah packed his meager belongings and went. The journey to Zarephath was a hundred miles. Elijah had to travel at night and rest during the day to avoid the search parties Ahab had sent out. God miraculously kept him supplied with enough food for the journey, as there was very little food or water left in the land. Elijah reached Zarephath in the daytime, dusty and footsore. He took the risk of moving during the day only once inside the borders of Zidonian territory, as it was unlikely that anyone in Ahab's employ would look for him here. As he continued toward the gates, he saw a woman picking up little sticks and twigs. She was gaunt from hunger and obviously suffering. Moved by a feeling that this was the woman God had sent him to, 
he spoke to her. I am a weary traveler, and I have been long on the roads without water. Would you be able to get some for me? The woman looked at him wearily. I can spare a little, but only a little. That's fine. I appreciate anything you can give. As she walked away from him to fetch the water, he called out, I am very hungry as well. Do you have a little piece of bread to spare? Unhappiness filled the woman's eyes when she turned back to him. I have no bread. All I have is a handful of flour left in my flour jar, and only a few spoonfuls of oil left in my bottle of oil. I'm gathering wood to build a fire and cook what's left into bread. After my son and I eat, we will have nothing, and we will starve to death. No, you will not. God sent me to you to ask for food and shelter, and he does not wish you to die. Your jar of flour and bottle of oil will never run out until God sends rain. Odd as it was, the woman felt that she could trust this man. She sensed that he was telling the truth. Elijah followed the widow to a home where she gave him water and made him a little chunk of bread out of the very last of what she had. This must have taken great faith for her, but she did it willingly. As Elijah ate the little piece of bread, he told the woman to check inside her bottle of oil and her jar of flour. When she did, she was astonished to see that they were full. Because you were unselfish and faithful to provide for my needs before your own, your needs are provided for. Elijah told the joyous woman his words were true. No matter how much meal and oil they took, there was always more. Elijah stayed with the widow and her son for months. One day, the child became very sick. His condition grew even worse as the days went by until he died. In her grief, the mother blamed the prophet for the death of her son. You did this, didn't you? You came here to find out my sins and punish me. Have you been praying for my son to die? Elijah bore this abuse calmly until her emotion had abated somewhat. Give me your son, he said, reaching for the small body. Why do you want him? Elijah did not answer, but picked up the child and walked upstairs to his room. He laid the dead child on the bed, then began to pray fervently. He had grown close to both the woman and her son and was grieved himself. God, I know you must have a reason for taking this child's life right now, but I ask you to show mercy to the woman of this house. She has shown me great kindness over the time I have stayed here, and she has suffered greatly through this famine and the illness of her son. Please forgive any sin she has committed and bring life back into this child. He lay down beside the child 
hoping to impart some warmth back into his body. Minutes passed, yet nothing happened. He continued to pray and lay down beside the child, getting up and back down three times. Suddenly, it seemed he felt a stirring in the boy's body. The youth began to breathe, and then his eyes opened. Elijah smiled, and then closed his eyes as he uttered a sincere and emotional prayer of thanks to the God who had heard his prayer. Elijah took the boy downstairs. The widow was sitting in the corner with her head down. Elijah's voice interrupted her quiet weeping. Your son lives again. The woman looked up to see her child standing there. Overcome with joy, she rushed over and embraced him. Tears of grief were washed away by tears of joy. After holding him for some time, she turned her attention back to Elijah. Now I know you are a man of God. I am sorry I ever doubted. God sent you to us. The words you speak are the truth. Elijah remained with this little family for about two years before he received word from God that it was time to return to Samaria. The drought with which God was punishing Israel had grown extremely severe. The suffering was intense. God heard the cries of the people. Go, show yourself again to Ahab. I am ready to send rain upon this weary earth. Elijah bid goodbye to the widow and her son and dutifully set off to do the job God had given him with only an inkling of the drama and danger that awaited him. To be continued in our next episode, and continue the adventure by reading the Bible story. Find it under the Resources tab at pcg.church.